You're listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome back. It's episode three, Ohio vs. Black Power. Today we're going to be talking to author Jim Robinell, a great author and attorney up in Cleveland. We went up to his office in the Key Tower, the tallest building in Ohio, and we sat down to talk about his book, Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. An awesome book. Go get it on Amazon. We've uh, tagged a link in the description here on the iTunes and, and all the podcast descriptions. Um, really, really good book. Released just this summer, July 2018. They say those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And we're basically caught in a time loop here. It's about 48 years, 50 years is the gap. And today we're going to be talking about the 60s in Cleveland. It's kind of the center of the civil rights movement. Few realize it, but so many historic events happened there, including one of the darkest events that we'll talk about. And that was the Glenville shootout, a police ambush in the Glenville area of East Cleveland. But also some of the brightest stuff. We'll talk about the election of Carl Stokes to mayor of Cleveland in 1967, the first African-American mayor of a major American city. They represent kind of the ballots and bullets that Jim talks about in his book. But in today's episode, we'll see that the events of the mid and the late 1960s in Cleveland, how they still affect events today. How a similar police ambush in 2016 in Dallas mirrors that of not just the black power politics, but also the actual presidential politics involved in the 1968 Glenville shootout and the 2016 Dallas shooting, where five officers were killed by lone gunman Michael Xavier Johnson, much like the black nationalist responsible for the Cleveland shootout in 68, Fred Ahmed Evans. We'll talk about their similarities. What we'll really look at is the frustrating nature of race relations in this country, in race politics. We'll sit down, we'll look at men like Malcolm X making incredible speeches in Cleveland. Martin Luther King, who was in 1967-68, was spending nearly every other weekend in Cleveland. Very few people know that. It's not really in his biographies, and we'll talk about why. Uh, we'll talk to, you know, we'll hear from people like Robert F. Kennedy in a speech he makes the day after Martin Luther King is killed here in Cleveland. We'll also hear from our current politicians, President Obama, and we'll listen to a speech given in Cleveland by President Trump at the Republican National Convention in 2016. Today, we're going to take you on a ride from 1965 about to 2018, and we'll look at the similarities, how we're still facing the same issues with Jim Robinout. You can get a deeper dive on this. He did an amazing six-part podcast I was listening to all summer. Uh, the music's fantastic, and it's just great. It's with Jim called Ballots and Bullets, uh, and it's produced by WKYC, which is the NBC affiliate in Cleveland, Channel 3. Um, again, Ballots and Bullets. Go look that up on iTunes. Six parts, really, really good stuff, and it really was the basis for our episode today. 
including some of the clips that we, uh, that we use from, from WKYC interviews, because we'll play you a lot of clips from Cleveland in the 1960s. Our beer for the episode, we're going back to Cleveland. We're going over the West Side Market right next door is Market Garden Brewery, marketgardenbrewery.com. Uh, it's been there for a few years. You can get it down here in Columbus and around the state. Great beer. And today we're having their Progress Pilsner, 5.5%, one of their flagships. Um, it's a Great American Beer Festival award-winning beer. Um, go check them out, like I said, in, in Ohio City, uh, marketgardenbrewery.com. This Progress Pilsner is named for the Cleveland slogan of progress and prosperity. Guys, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Ohio V The World. Don't forget to see our Instagram, Ohio V The World podcast. Uh, thanks again to everyone who's at the launch party. We had such a great time uh, a couple weeks ago. And we'll have a new one for season four. So we hope you can make it out to that one. Thanks again to everybody who made it and donated their money to, uh, to the charity. So much appreciated. Go rate and review the show on iTunes. Subscribe. That's what helps us move up the rankings. Uh, so that when you type in Ohio and iTunes, you see us come, you know, fourth, fifth, um, instead of after about four different Ohio State football podcasts. Um, but rate and review the show. Give us the five stars. Um, but rate and review it because it does help people find the show and help spread the word. And show news, uh, I'm doing a couple of podcasts. I'll be on Whiskey Business again with Dino Tripodis, uh, one of our favorites. They have a YouTube page now for Whiskey Business. And we are talking about uh, George Remus. We drank a bottle of the George Remus uh, bourbon. It was great stuff. Uh, always good to be on Dino's show. That's our third time. Go check that out again on iTunes or YouTube, Whiskey Business Podcast. And we're super excited. We just recorded uh, Town Hall Ohio, which is a weekly radio public affairs podcast. Uh, also airs on 610 WTVN, big station here in Columbus and some other stations around the state. Uh, but it's a podcast by the Ohio, Ohio Farm Bureau. And that was hosted by Joe Cornelia, great, great broadcaster. Again, that's Town Hall Ohio. Uh, the last two guests were Richard Cordry, and before that, Governor candidate Mike DeWine. The Ohio Senator candidates were on a few episodes ago, and then me. So it's kind of a lot to, to live up to, but we talked about uh, Ohio history, the Ohio history's connection, the show, podcasting in general, uh, and just some great moments in Ohio history. Really cool show. It's actually the show that um, really got me started podcasting about Ohio history because uh, it was kind of the closest thing out there even though it's mostly just interviews and, like I said, public affairs. And uh, thanks for having me on. Without further ado, let's get started on what I think is one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. We're going to go back to the 60s and see how it exactly mirrors what we're going through here today. It's episode three, Ohio vs. Black Power. Last night here in Dallas, peaceful protests were underway after deadly police shootings elsewhere in the country. The demonstrations, though, suddenly rocked by gunfire, people running for cover. A fierce assault of gunfire, police officers were being shot one by one, and when it was over, 14 people had been shot. Five police officers were killed. It was the most deadly day for law enforcement since 9-11. So we got a 
guy with a long rifle. We don't know where the hell he's at. A police negotiator speaking with the shooter identified as 25-year-old Michael Xavier Johnson, an Army veteran. The suspect said he was upset at white people. The suspect stated he wanted to kill white people, especially white officers. On July 7, 2016, downtown Dallas, five Dallas police officers were killed at a Black Lives Matter rally. Why do we share that on this episode? Because we're going to show that these same problems, these same terrible incidents, have echoes in the past, have echoes in Ohio's past, especially in Cleveland. We start our story in 1964. Malcolm X comes to Cleveland to give what became one of his, probably his most famous speech. The recording we'll hear is actually from nine days later in Detroit, but it's the same speech, the ballot or the bullet. We talked to Jim Robinell about Malcolm X's speech that he used for the name of his book and how Malcolm X was the voice of black nationalism in America. Malcolm X came there in, 19, in the spring of 1964 when there was a big debate about integrating the schools in Cleveland. He also was just breaking with the Nation of Islam. So this speech that he put together was really important, and it um, becomes known as one of the top 10 most influential speeches in the 20th century. I mean, it's that important, and it's called The Ballot or the Bullet, and that is why I named the book Ballots and Bullets. Mr. Moderator, Reverend Klee, brothers and sisters, and friends, and I see some enemies. In fact, I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we had an audience this large and didn't realize that there were some enemies present. This afternoon, we want to talk about the ballot or the bullet. The ballot or the bullet explains itself. Whether you, are, whether you are a Christian or a Muslim or a nationalist, we all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist, they hang you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim, they attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag in the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation, all of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed us. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today it's time to stop singing and start swinging. And as I wrote this book and, and read more about him, learned more about him, really studied this speech that he gave, I really began to understand that he was a really critical, important figure in American history and that he was the counterbalance to Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was Christian. 
He was for nonviolence. He was for integration. And Malcolm X was Muslim, and he did not believe in nonviolence. He thought if somebody punched in the nose, you should punch him back. So he really believed in armed self-defense, not violence for its own sake, but armed self-defense. And he also was not particularly interested in integration. He didn't really believe it was ever going to happen. And so really, those are two ends of the black freedom spectrum. And they kind of balanced each other out. Oddly enough, they both started to grow towards each other in their worldviews in the last years of their lives. In 1966, in a neighborhood called Huff in Cleveland, there was the Huff Rebellion, a riot, one of the worst in, in Ohio's history. Then Cleveland Mayor Ralph Loker had to call out the National Guard. It took many days. We talked to Jim Robinell about what was the Huff Riot, and why did this riot happen, like the, the famous Watts Riot in Los Angeles the year before, and the deadly Detroit Riot a year later. People didn't understand why these, these riots were happening in African-American communities after the passage of the Voters' Rights Act in 65 or the Civil Rights Act in 1964. You can go back and listen to our Ohio versus Jim Crow episode uh, to, to learn about the passage of those two laws and Ohio's role in it. We asked Jim about the Huff Riots of 1966, July 18th, 1966, when they started, and how it all stemmed out of an argument at a bar, actually called the, the 79ers Cafe on Huff Street in East 79th. The Huff, is, is, uh, Huff neighborhood is directly east of town, it's probably about three miles east from downtown. Uh, and right next to it is Glenville, which, as I said, was originally a Jewish enclave and then became all African-American. And Glenville is where the shootout will take place in 68. Right, and they're, they're neighboring neighborhoods. Yeah. They're right next to each other. Huff was one of those areas that was overcrowded and was you know, a, a ghetto that was having a lot of problems. And those problems you know, morph into prostitution and, and drugs and... Um, all sorts of bad things happen when you get that sort of overcrowding. Just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about with overcrowding, back then Huff had about 70,000 people stuffed into this neighborhood that today has about 17,000. Right. So um, what happened in the hot summer of 1966, uh, there was a bar uh, run by two white guys who uh, were kind of rough with their patrons and some guy came in and wanted to get a drink of water and was denied it there's a whole backstory about what exactly happened how it happened but he came back and put a sign on the bar that says you know no water for Nick and that caused a crowd to, to gather these two brothers who owned this bar uh, one was a former marine and they had guns and they actually came back to the bar and get, got out in front of the bar when the crowd was gathering with their one had a rifle and the other one had a pistol and they were kind of brandishing them and people started throwing rocks. They went back inside. Uh, they called and asked for help and nobody came. The crowd grew bigger and bigger. By the time the police got there, it was a huge crowd throwing rocks. And then that crowd turned on the police. Um, and then they started to destroy all the businesses in Huff that were being run principally by white people who... Um, did not treat their patrons very well. They overcharged them because they knew they were stuck in this ghetto and a lot of them didn't have transportation to get out. So there was, there was this really kind of reckoning with the, the store owners who they all 
hated because of the way they were treated and, and overcharged. Uh, a lot of people on the African-American side called it their version of urban renewal. Um, but it really was. Things started to go up in smoke. There was sniping. Four people lost their lives over about five days, uh, all of them African-Americans. Although there were all sorts of claims of sniping by African-American snipers, which I, th I think there probably were, but no policeman was shot. No policeman uh, reported finding any rifles anywhere um, as they went through the neighborhoods. But it was a real out of control situation. It was so out of control that Ralph Loker, a day after it started, had to call in the National Guard to come and help them put it down. Martin Luther King comes to Cleveland in 1967. He's there nearly every week. Every other weekend is what Jim said. He's there registering voters. He's there trying to push his agenda of black political power, claiming victory on civil rights. As he moves north, we asked Jim about Martin Luther King in the northern urban cities and his role in the 1967 mayoral campaign in Cleveland. It's here we'll meet Carl Stokes, an African-American lawyer who will become the first black mayor of a major American city. Martin Luther King was very successful in the South. He had, uh, the Birmingham campaign gave rise to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. He also, you know, won a Nobel Peace Prize for what he was doing <clears throat> and Time Man of the Year. Uh, and then he had the Selma campaign a year later in 1965. And once again, that resulted in the 65 Voting Rights Act. So it seemed like there was a lot of progress that was happening. It seemed like there were a lot of uh, breakthroughs in the civil rights movement. The problem was in the North, and I put Watts in that category as a, a, like a Northern city where great migrations of people came after the wars. Those African-Americans who came from the South to get out of Jim Crow and to look for jobs ended up being really crunched into ghettos. And those ghettos became ghettos in every word, every sense of the word. We feel that over the last few years, through our nonviolent struggle, we have achieved moral power and we have literally subpoenaed large segments of the nation to appear before the judgment seat of morality on the question of civil rights. Now it is necessary to transform this moral power into political power so that we can bring about the necessary political reforms that will solve the problems that we face. As I look back and read a lot of books to write this book, I really noticed that there was almost no mention of him coming to Cleveland. Um, I now have a theory about why that is, which I'll talk about, but what happened was King had moved out of the South, where, as I said, he was very successful, into the North, and he went to Chicago. And he wanted to go live in the slums and in the ghettos to see what it was like, and he wanted to march. Um, in Chicago, he wanted to desegregate the schools, and to do that, he wanted to desegregate the neighborhoods. And so he marched in, not Skokie, but similar type neighborhoods in Chicago that were all white, and the violence was tremendous. The response from people, you know, having African Americans marching to say, we want to move into your neighborhood is very different from somebody marching for the right to vote or even to sit on the, in the front part of a bus. It's a real personal threat to people. Uh, and uh, King was shocked by how vehement the violence was. He, he certainly expected it, but 
I mean, he almost got killed a couple times in these marches. He eventually realizes that he's causing a lot of chaos in Chicago, and he cuts a deal with Mayor Daley that's kind of milk toast, uh, and really declares victory and leaves, but it's the low point in his career. He, he, uh, he decides that he needs to change his tactic, and he really needs to focus on what he thinks now is the most important thing, which is black political power. And as he looks across the United States, the place where it's going to happen is Cleveland, because Carl Stokes had almost won in 65, and then Huff happens, now the white business community in Cleveland is saying, we support you if you can bring us peace. Uh, they don't like Loker anymore. Um, and so it's pretty clear that Stokes has a really good chance to win and be the first African-American uh, mayor of a major U.S. city. And at the time, Cleveland was the eighth largest city in the country. It had a population of 800,000. So King comes to Cleveland, and he wants to stay here to help you know, register voters, but he really wants to be on the scene of a victory um, of this great after victory. After Chicago. Yeah, after Chicago. And, and you know, this is gonna be a milestone. Um, Carl Stokes is the, is the Barack Obama of his day. He's a lawyer, he's very smooth, charismatic. Um, and um, so he wants to be here. Carl, Carl Stokes doesn't want him to be here. And he begs him not to come. And King says, no, I'm coming, and he does. I mean, they kind of have this back and forth. But he says, I will not be as controversial as I was in Chicago. I won't march for open housing, for example. So you see no pictures of King marching through Parma, Ohio, for open <laughs> housing. Um, but you also see no pictures of him with Carl Stokes. So Stokes avoided him, thinking, I've got the black community sewed up. I don't need you to alienate the few white votes I want to get. And King comes anyway. Can't blame either one of them for, for what happens. But I think that has a lot to do with the fact that his coming to Cleveland was, is not in the history books as much because the, the family, I think, afterwards, uh, Coretta Scott King said that, uh, that King felt this was one of the great snubs of his life when he wasn't allowed to come and participate in the victory ceremony with uh, Carl Stokes. Stokes ran for mayor in 1965, lost to Ralph Loker, the man we talked about. But after the Huff riots, blacks and whites turned to Carl Stokes as possibly an answer, an answer for peace in the city of Cleveland. We play a clip uh, from the news, people on the street being asked about how race plays a role in their vote in 1967. We talked to Jim about just how did Carl Stokes win the election and become the first black mayor in America. This election seems to have a lot more interest than a lot of elections in recent years. Why do you think so? Well, I guess it's the racial, uh, the racial point. What is there about Loker that, you know? Well, I like what he's done and I, just like he said, I think he'll uh, find the mistakes he's made and won't make them again. Well, why wouldn't you give Stokes a chance? Well, I guess it's the idea of having a colored guy in. Stokes was a guy who um, came up in the projects, uh, and he 
went to high school, was a boxer. He, um, he actually was a pretty good boxer. And he became kind of a street tough. Um, and he eventually goes to college, but kind of drops out. And he ends up going into the Army. That changes him. Uh, and when he's in the Army, he goes overseas. And, and the one thing that all of these guys from the time who were African-American who went into the service and went overseas said they really noticed how people treated them differently and treated them like regular people as opposed to Places the like treatment France that, and, and other yeah, places, yeah. As opposed to their treatment here. So he comes back with kind of a renewed interest in continuing his education and gets becomes a lawyer and then gets involved in politics, and he's very savvy politically. He's got some good mentors, uh, and Cleveland itself is becoming uh, about 30 35% African-American. So the, the demographics are in his favor they do some gerrymandering, um, and he ends up getting a, a seat in the uh, Ohio House, um, and and is uh, you know an Ohio legislator, and it's from that platform that he then runs for mayor for the first time in 1965. He runs as an independent, not as a Democrat. Right. And he doesn't he doesn't make it, but he has a very good showing, and um, Huff happens, and the white community begins to back him some very important business leaders in Cleveland begin to back him. And so he gets into that campaign in 67, knowing that if he plays everything just right, uh, he, can, he can do it. And in fact, uh, his opponent is Seth Taft, who's a Jones Day lawyer. And Seth has a very clean campaign. He, he, he avoids the topic of race. Um, he's very He's a very cool guy. I mean, he's the grandson of William Howard Taft, a president and the former um, uh, chief of, of the Supreme Court, the only, chief justice, the only guy to be both a president and chief justice in our history. Um, and he almost, you know, bridges the gap and uh, Stokes wins by about 2,500 votes late in the evening, and it's a big deal across the country. He's on the cover of Time and Newsweek. It's, it's huge, um, not unlike when Obama was elected. It's a wonderful moment. Never has one man owed so much to so many. Those of us who were Polish, Hungarian, Croatian, Romanians, Negroes, Germans, Irish, all Jewish, yeah. And I can find no more fitting way to end this appeal by saying to all of you in the most serious and in the most meaningful way that I can that truly never before have I ever known the full meaning of the words, God bless America. Thanks all. Carl Stokes wins becomes the mayor of Cleveland. It's a huge story. But where was Martin Luther King? He was in Cleveland that night. He's even in the hotel. But he doesn't make it down. He's not allowed to come down and share in the victory. We asked Jim, why not? Yeah, it's a it's a um, kind of a sad story in that to that extent. Um, 
King had been here, as I said, all summer to help register people and, and to get people uh, out to vote in Cleveland. But he comes back at the end, right the day, day before the election. And the reason uh, he comes back is to be on the scene. He wants to be here and be recognized for what he's done and, and so forth. Carl Stokes, again, really doesn't want to have King alienate people. And as I say in the talks that I give, I don't blame Carl Stokes. Back then, when you were elected on a Tuesday, you were sworn in on the following Monday. So he had to put together a coalition government very quickly. He's the first black mayor. He knows that it's explosive. And I think he just doesn't want to have additional alienation by having King standing next to him. And in fact, if you go back and read The Plain Dealer and you read a lot of stuff, there were all sorts of pamphlets that Carl Stokes is going to be run by Martin Luther King. I mean, it was being used against him in a heavy way. So Carl's brother, Lou, who later becomes a, I don't know, 15, 17-term congressman, um, keeps King in the hotel room, and he does not come down when they, they have the victory celebration. And you say King, you know, that was one of the big snubs of, of his yeah. career. Yeah, Cre Scott King told Ebony Magazine several years later that uh, King considered that the greatest snub of his, of his career. Um, so he was not happy about it. I'm sure he understood it, but he was not happy about it. Thanks for listening to Ohio V the World. Every episode this season, we will bring you an Ohio History Connection Minute that is highlight the work being done to spark discovery of Ohio's stories. The Ohio History Connection, formerly the Ohio Historical Society, preserves and shares the history of the state of Ohio. In each episode, we'll talk with an employee of the OHC or someone from the over 50 sites we manage across the Buckeye State. I urge you to visit our museum, the Ohio History Center in Columbus, and become a member. Go to ohiohistory.org slash join. So thanks for listening. Hope to see you at the History Center this year, and go to ohiohistory.org slash join for membership info. This week, we sat down with Truda Schinker from the Development Office at the Ohio History Connection. We talked to Truda about Giving Tuesday. There's Black Friday, and there's Cyber Monday. The next day after Thanksgiving is Giving Tuesday, and we'll put all that info on our Facebook and other places so you can give uh, to continue telling Ohio stories. But we talked to Truda about Giving Tuesday and how you can help support the Ohio History Connection. Thanks for having me, Alex. This Definitely. is great. Um, giving Tuesday is an international day of giving that was created in response to um, Black Friday and Cyber Monday. So on November 27th is when it falls this year. And um, if you'd like to make a gift to support Ohio stories and Ohio history, you can go to our website, which is ohiohistory.org. And there's a big donate or give button on there. Just click on that, and it'll take you right to our online giving page. And it's super easy to make a gift. And that's November 27th. November 27th. And, and what's the website again? ohiohistory.org and then you click the donate button the money that we get from private donors really makes a huge difference in the work that we do i mean we do get money from the state but that covers our basic functions but right. the money that we get from individual people and companies and foundations really allows us to do the important work that we do for the people of the state of ohio thanks Trudy, so much for joining us remember giving tuesday november 27th you can go to ohiohistory.org hit the donate button, or just look on our Facebook page. Uh, we'll be asking for any donations you can give um, to help support Ohio history. As we rejoin our story in 1967 in Cleveland, when we talk about Cleveland being the center of, of black power politics in the 60s, 
Yet another example that echoes the things that we deal with today. We look at the kneeling during the national anthem Colin Kaepernick started in the NFL. There was an event very similar. I would say much more important was when Muhammad Ali was picked in the draft and decided not to serve as a conscientious objector, saying that the war was wrong. Ali is vilified in, in the press, in the public. The United States is in the heat of the Vietnam War. And that summer, being threatened with jail, Ali accepts an invitation from Jim Brown, the greatest running back of all time, the world champion Cleveland Browns running back, and social activist. Brown invites Ali to meet with him and other leading black athletes in Cleveland. And Ali comes that summer. There's a famous picture, uh, and we'll, we'll use it on one of our, our posts for this episode, but it's all athletes. Lou Alcindor and, and Jim Brown and, and you know, Bill Russell. And there's also one guy who's not an athlete in the corner. It's Carl Stokes, the mayor of Cleveland, was in on that heated meeting between athletes talking about political protest how they can all unite, how they ex explain their positions. It echoes so much of what's going on with the, with the national anthem controversy today, even though I think that controversy is incredibly overblown and played out. We talked to Jim about the original sports and political protest, the Ali Summit, which takes place in Cleveland in 1967. Yeah, well, what happens is Jim Brown, who, who knows Ali, um, and another guy who played for the Browns, Walter Beach, both of them were in the 64 championship team. Yeah, they know, uh, they know Ali. And Jim Brown decides that he wants to bring Ali to Cleveland um, because of all the controversy swirling around. Ali had declared that he was going to be a conscientious objector to the draft because of the Nation of Islam. He had joined the Nation of Islam. Right at the time, by the way, that Malcolm X left. Um, it's kind of an interesting parallel. In any event, um, what Jim Brown decides to do is to have Ali come, and he's going to have him talk to all black athletes. Uh, and, and he invites certain people. Nobody refused to come who he invited. And they included Bill Russell from the Celtics, uh, Walter Beach, who I talked about, uh, Jim Brown himself, and Lou Alcindor, who was still um, Lou Alcindor at that point, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, I think he was still at UCLA at the time. And then some Green Bay Packers and some of the other Browns linemen. They all got together to meet with him. Several of them had military backgrounds. Walter Beach, for example, served in the Air Force. Um, and uh, Brown was in ROTC when he was in college. So they actually were thinking of trying to talk him out of it. And, um, but they were going to listen to him. And if he, if he really had the strong conviction they were going to support him, and that's what happens. They had about a two- or three-hour meeting, a lot of raised voices, according to Walter Beach, who was in, in, still alive today. And who, told you, me about, who you still talk to, right? Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, they believed that he was sincere in his beliefs, and so they came out and supported him. And so, you know, you, you talk about black athletes taking a knee. This is a guy who's saying, I'm not going to serve in a time of war. Um, this is not just kneeling during an anthem. Um, and so it was a very important moment, I think, for everybody in that picture and for Ali to get the support of these guys. And uh, it, uh, it's, it, you know, his story goes on 
you know, he couldn't box because of it and everything else. Eventually, he comes back, but and the war becomes, you know, a war that nobody really likes at the end of the day. So it was uh, far thinking by um, Jim Brown to have him come. The violent year in 1968, starting with the Tet Offensive, a successful offensive by the Viet Cong in the Vietnam War, continues on April 4th, 1968, when Martin Luther King Jr. is assassinated in Memphis. Just a few four or five days after LBJ announces he will not run for re-election. There's riots all over the United States, but there's no riots in Cleveland. We asked Jim, why not? With so much violence in the streets following his assassination, why doesn't Cleveland riot? This was, you know, I named the, the uh, book The Ballad or the Bullet, and the ballad is obviously Carl Stokes, you know, so the hope that through the ballad things can change. And that hope was reinforced at the night the king was killed because every place else went up in smoke, was rioting everywhere. Johnson had to call out the army in Washington, D.C. It was that serious. And in Cleveland, Carl Stokes went out and walked the streets along with other people to uh, cool things down. And in doing that, he really did keep the peace in Cleveland and everybody breathed a sigh of relief in Cleveland. And everybody around the country looked at Cleveland and said, look at that. They elected an African-American mayor and they had peace, even on this horrific night where King has been assassinated. So people took a lot of hope from that and a lot of, uh, a lot of encouragement that things that this the experiment was working. The issue of gun violence in 1968 was nearly as prevalent as it is today. Assassinations happened at a, high, a much higher frequency in the 60s. But the day after Martin Luther King was shot, Robert Kennedy, now running in the Democratic primary, was scheduled to come to Cleveland. He's scheduled to make a speech at the famous City Club downtown. But he decides to just make a short speech. And our guest today, Jim Robinell, says it's one of his best speeches. And we'll play it for you from the Cleveland City Club on April 5th, 1968. Yeah, I think it's the best. It's called The Mindless Menace of Violence. Bobby Kennedy was in Indianapolis. Most people have seen that snippet where he speaks to an African-American crowd and tells them that King had been killed. And then he gives an extemporaneous speech that's, that's very eloquent. He, he you know, cites some poetry, too, right off the top of his head. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's courageous. It's beautiful. But it, I, I don't think it holds a candle to this speech, which he then spent the night uh, working with one of his speechwriters, Jeff Greenfield, um, who keeps falling asleep during the night. And Bobby Kennedy has to wake him up. Uh, but they put together this speech that's all of 10 minutes long. And it's about the mindless menace of violence in the United States. It's about guns and racism. And that uh, the country just can't sustain this anymore. And we have to start looking at each other as brothers and sisters. And that we also have to do something about people's access to guns. Um, so it's a very prophetic speech, obviously, um, for the country and for him. Two months later, he's killed by gun violence. And he delivers it. It's a 10-minute speech at the City Club of Cleveland the next afternoon. It is not a day for politics. I have saved this one opportunity, my only event of today, to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America 
which again stains our land and every one of our lives. It is not the concern of any one race. The victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. Our lives on this planet are too short. The work to be done is too great to let this spirit flourish any longer in this land of ours. Of course, we cannot banish it with a program nor with a resolution. But we can perhaps remember, if only for a time, that those who live with us are our brothers, that they share with us the same short moment of life, that they seek, as do we, nothing but the chance to live out their lives in purpose and in happiness, winning what satisfaction and fulfillment that they can. Kennedy himself is killed in June of 68 after winning the California primary, seeming primed to be the presidential candidate from the Democratic Party. Following King's death, Carl Stokes, in his first year as mayor, begins a program called Cleveland Now, a public and privately funded project to pour money into the inner cities of Cleveland, housing, education, to solve those problems that have afflicted the city of Cleveland and many other urban centers for decades and decades. It would be a model for for other cities, for Chicago and Detroit, to save our inner cities. Cleveland now becomes a huge success. Money pours in. People, businessmen back then, like George Steinbrenner, was a Cleveland businessman in the late 60s. And he commits money to Cleveland now. We talk to Jim about the Cleveland Now program, and we'll also hear from the new Democratic challenger, Herbert Humphrey, Johnson's vice president, becomes the favorite to take on Nixon in November's election. We'll hear from Humphrey when he speaks from the City Club in Cleveland. Cleveland Now came about after King was killed when Carl Stokes wanted to put together a memorial fund for him along the lines of the Poor People's Campaign, addressing education, housing, jobs for the ghettos of Cleveland. And he starts off with a very modest program. The white community gets behind it, then the federal government gets behind it, and within a month, by May 1st, 1968, um, it's a $1.2 billion commitment over 10 years. Uh, Now that's like $10 billion for these, you know, inner city problems that they were trying to address. Imagine had that money been spent back in 68. Imagine spending $10 billion today on these things. I mean, it's a huge commitment. And so again, right track. Mayor Stokes, my good friend, uh, Carl, and 
fellow citizens here in Cleveland, Ohio. Some of you may note, uh, if your vision is as good as I think it is, that I wear a button that says Cleveland Now. Carl Stokes wears a pin that says Humphrey for President. <laughs> it's a fair deal. <laughs> Cleveland Now, Carl, Humphrey in November. <laughs> Now, many cities are today just coming alive after a long slumber. And I hope you won't think me unkind if I say that Cleveland, Ohio, under the leadership of your mayor, with the Cleveland Now program and all that it represents of public and private commitment and endeavor, that Cleveland Now symbolizes the reawakening of the city and its people. As we discussed earlier, black power and black nationalism in Cleveland was, was vibrant. One of the leaders was a man named Fred Ahmed Evans. Fred Evans was, he knew Malcolm X. He knew Martin Luther King. There's pictures of him and King. And there's a bunch of pictures of him as a black leader in Carl Stokes. But Fred Ahmed Evans and many other people who were known as subversives, were under the investigation of the FBI, J. Edgar, Ho J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. We talked to our guest, Jim Robinell, about the surveillance going on on the Cleveland black nationalist Fred Ahmed Evans in what a program called COINTELPRO. Yeah, it's a fascinating program. The FBI put together a program in the 50s called the Counterintelligence Program. In short, they called it COINTELPRO, J. Edgar Hoover's baby. He was going after communists. And typical of J. Edgar Hoover, it has all these, you know, sidebars. Tentacles, yeah. All these tentacles and all these, you know, uh, ways of going about it. One of the main things they did is they hired informants who then would infiltrate the Communist Party in the, in the 50s and try to uh, destroy from within. Uh, to find out what was going on, but also sow seeds of doubt and distrust and all that. Plant stuff. newspaper stories, those types of right. things. Right. And, and so this then, this machinery that was used as an anti-communist fighting machinery morphs into an anti-black nationalist, anti-Martin Luther King, anti-Malcolm X machinery where the, the same model is used. Informants are paid and they get inside of the to find out what's going on, and they are re reporting to the, to the FBI throughout. It's a, it becomes a huge program. The FBI actually gives it a name uh, called the Ghetto Listening Post, and they have you know five, 6,000 people on the payroll. And here in Cleveland, there appear to be at least you know, six people who are informing on Fred Evans. I ended up finding these files in the National Archives in 2016 they had just recently been declassified, so I'm the first one to write about them. And you, and you read those Fred Evans files. I mean, how long? I'm mean, 40, yeah. 50, 60 pages. And what are we talking about? Uh, no, 400 pages. Wow. Um, they are they are very um, voluminous, and their memos. Some of the memos are 40 pages long that are put <laughs> together, background memos and that sort of thing. But but what happens is 
one of the informants in particular, and there are about, as I say, six or seven who are giving information within this group. And this is not a big group, right. you know? It's a lot of informants. But one of them in particular drives around with Fred Evans the night before the shootout up to Detroit and elsewhere. And he is literally calling his FBI contact saying, this is about to happen. It's about to come down. And that information goes to the FBI, which then goes to the Cleveland Police Department through something called their subversives unit. And so we know exactly what happened because we now have these files. On July 23rd, 1968, is the event we're talking about today, the Glenville Shootout. Glenville, another overcrowded, poor black neighborhood in East Cleveland, right next door to Huff. Fred Ahmed Evans leads a group there known as the, the Black Nationalists of New Libya, uh, among other names. We talked to Jim just about how the shootout started, how it may have been prevented. An attack on police that leaves three policemen dead, many wounded, and a total of 10 people killed in a four-hour shootout on that night of July 23rd, 1968. Again, tragedy it intervenes here. First of all, the tragedy one, Stokes is out of town. He's in Washington speaking with other mayors about the most ironic topic, is the big city dying? Um, and they address that, and he finishes, goes to the airport, and the report has now come in that there's a threat, uh, that you know the, the, the informant has told the police, the police then meet. They don't know quite what to do, and they call the safety director, a guy named Joe McManaman, Joe had been a policeman, so he had some police experience, and then he went to law school. He would later become a judge that I would appear, appear in front of uh, later in his career. And Joe comes back. He's a West Side Irishman who supported Stokes, so Stokes put him in this position, which was the safety director. It's the same position that Elliot Ness had back in the, whatever it was, 30s, 40s. 30s, yeah. Um, and so um, Joe is asked, what do we do about this? And as a lawyer and a policeman, he said, well, you know, they've got a lot of guns. They're telling us that tomorrow morning, the 24th, uh, when somebody comes to have them evicted from where they are, they're going to shoot that person. And then when the police come, they're going to shoot as many white policemen as they can. That's the plan. They know that from this informant. And Joe says, well, can we really trust this informant, number one? And then he says... And the fact that they've got guns, you know, well, the Constitution allows you to have guns. You know, there's no crime in that. So we don't have any basis to go get, you know, a, a, an arrest warrant right. or a search warrant. And that's crazy to me, frankly, all these years later. They had not just people with guns, but they had somebody telling them they were going to use these guns. They had more than what we call probable cause to do a search warrant at the least and probably arrest warrants. Um, but this guy makes this critical, flawed decision, and everybody goes with it, because he says what we should do is send our police out and have them go through the neighborhood in a what's called a roving surveillance, moving cars, don't have anybody just sit there, have them go through and keep an eye on what's going on, and that was his solution. Everybody in the meeting who went to that meeting said the one thing they said do not do is have a stationary surveillance, because if you put a car there, with a bunch of policemen in it, even if it's an unmarked car with a bunch of white guys in it, it's gonna potentially provoke what they're trying to stop. Uh, and somewhere along the chain, that order turns from a roving surveillance into a stationary surveillance. 
two cars are parked outside on different blocks, but clearly visible to the people in this house, the black nationalists in, in the house, with uh, four white guys in each of the cars with shotguns and binoculars. And Fred Evans, who's been up all night driving to Detroit saying, this, by the way, was supposed to be a multi-city kickoff, yeah. not just Cleveland, um, says we're about to be attacked. He believes he's about to be attacked. And everybody get ready. And they all, you know, get ready to um, go out in the neighborhood to scare off the police or begin shooting the police. It's not clear exactly what happens. But that is really what provokes the, uh, the bloodbath that night. It is a fact that around 8.30 yesterday evening, that uh, a tow truck driver, Cleveland tow truck driver, was shot at and wounded uh, in the area involved. And at that time, the police cars came to the scene and there was the heavy exchange of gunfire between the police and between the men who were located in the building. Now. Most of the, or almost all of the 10 persons who are dead, that include three policemen, seven civilians, as well as the 15 persons who were wounded, uh, all incurred uh, this injury and the death at this scene. Everything that happens in about the next two hours where all the shooting takes place is about in a two block area. It's not a really big expanded area. There's one, areas right in front of the house where they the nationalists were and there were young kids in there one of them is 16 years old shooting an m2 Correct, and probably yeah. doing the most damage because uh, that's a you know a automatic it's a vietnam rifle vietnam rifle uh fred evans himself had an m1 that he that he walked out of the house with so there's that that area of, of activity Fred Ahmed Evans and his associates that survived the shootout are arrested. And it's quickly learned that Evans used money from Stokes' program Cleveland Now. He'd gotten a $30,000 check from Cleveland Now for programs that he was claiming to put on in the city. But he used that money to buy firearms, ammunition, as he planned for this shootout. Mayor Stokes makes the controversial decision to pull all white officers out of the Glenville area. Very unpopular among the police and among many Cleveland citizens. We'll also hear from an African-American leader. Again, thanks to WKYC, uh, they pulled the archives and found all these great interviews uh, that, we, that we borrowed today. Um, and again, go listen to Jim Robinelt's podcast, WKYC's podcast, Ballots and Bullets, uh, from this summer, six parts, Really, really good stuff. But we'll hear from Stokes, we'll hear from our guest, and we'll also hear from a leader from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in Cleveland. As a representative of the black community here in Cleveland, do you feel that keeping white policemen out of the area is going to help alleviate some of the problem? No, I don't, because the policemen don't create the problems. The policemen's are only, uh, policemen are only symbolic of the power structure when they come in and uh, fail to communicate with the people in the community. So they are seen as the power structure when really they are only symbols. 
And I feel if you remove all the police, black and white, you're still going to have the problems and you're still going to have violence. I feel that removing the police may ease the tensions for the time being, but at the same time, some constructive contact and programming is going to have to be done uh, in the black community to alleviate these kind of conditions which what cause What would you violence. like to see done in the black community? What specific program do you think would help alleviate some of the frustration in this area? Well, I think a very direct, hard uh, attack and approach on the whole questions of housing and jobs would deal with that problem more than anything else. These are the kind of things that allow people to walk out of their houses to see what's going on in the corner. They don't have anything that interests them to keep them on the inside. In the suburbs, you have incidents that happen every day, but the people stay in because they uh, see their homes as their castles. One of the basic problems in the black community in Cleveland is that they have such inferior housing until they spend less time in their house than they do anywhere else. So as a result, they walk the streets and they do different things to occupy their time and to release their frustrations. It's a damning blow to Cleveland now. It actually is a huge impact, I think, on inner city politics and in, in, in the ghettos here still in America. That Cleveland now goes belly up shortly after it's learned that Evans has used the money to kill cops. And it also starts the downturn of Carl Stokes' own political career. A rising star would never really reach the heights that he reached in 1967 1968. We hear from Stokes at a press conference after the event, and I'll also hear from Jim Rubinow about the fallout of the Glenville shootout. If you were elected mayor, there would be no racial violence in the What do you think that this has done to that image? Well, there always has been a very great difficulty in helping people to understand what have been and ordinarily are the uh, basic causes of riots. Ordinarily, the rioting as we have known it, the civil disorders as we have known it, has been the frustrated rebellion or reaction of a, uh, of a deprived population to an unresponsive city government, ordinarily. Now, that was not reflected in last night's incident, and it would have to be, at least at this point, Last night's incident will still have to be viewed in the light of the, uh, of the small and determined group that were involved. Because what were they determined in doing? I mean, what was their motive, folks? What did they want? To, what, well, I can't guess at their, at their motive, but we can only, we can only uh, draw the conclusion from the, the fact that they were armed and... Uh, Weren't they unhappy about something? Otherwise, they wouldn't have done this. Do you have any idea what they were unhappy about? Well, nothing that I could report to you at all. Carl Stokes, who had had this honeymoon period, that begins his fighting with not just the police, who were very powerful in the, in the city, but with then the white establishment that supported him and had given money to Cleveland now, and now you're using this you know, somebody's using this money to buy rifles. I mean, it's a, a disaster for him politically. And while he'll win one, one more re-election campaign, he's really done, because he does nothing but fight from that point forward whereas before he was doing constructive things. The connection between the Glenville shootout and the Dallas shootings of 2016 are pretty clear. Both take place in July of a very hotly contested presidential election, an election that would change the history of the country. In 1968, it was Democratic Vice President 
Hubert Humphrey running against Richard Nixon. In 2016, the Republican convention in Cleveland is just a couple of weeks, two weeks, I think, after the Dallas shootout on July 7, 2016. As Donald Trump runs against Hillary Clinton. And as Jim so eloquently points out in his book, following the Dallas shootout, we have you know, echoes of the past, not just in the event, but also in, in President Obama makes a speech at the memorial service and in an open letter he sends to police. And in it, he echoes Robert F. Kennedy's speech from the Cleveland City Club that we listened to earlier in, in April of 68, the day after MLK dies. We'll hear President Obama echoing RFK in his City Club speech. Hear that speech from President Obama in Dallas just a few months before the 2016 presidential election. We know that the overwhelming majority of police officers do an incredibly hard and dangerous job fairly and professionally. They are deserving of our respect and not our scorn. We also know that centuries of racial discrimination, of slavery and subjugation and Jim Crow, they didn't simply vanish with the end of lawful segregation. They didn't just stop when Dr. King made a speech or the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act were signed. Race relations have improved dramatically in my lifetime. Those who deny it are dishonoring the struggles that helped us achieve that progress. But we know <laughs> But America, we know that bias remains. We know it. Whether you are black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or of Middle Eastern descent, we have all seen this bigotry in our own lives at some point. We've heard it at times in our own homes. If we're honest, perhaps we've heard prejudice in our own heads and felt it in our own hearts. We know that. None of us is entirely innocent. No institution is entirely immune. And that includes our police departments. We know this. Can we see in each other a common humanity and a shared dignity and recognize how our different experiences have shaped us? And it doesn't make anybody perfectly good or perfectly bad. It just makes us human. I don't know. I confess that sometimes I, too, experience doubt. With an open heart, we can abandon the overheated rhetoric and the oversimplification that reduces whole categories of our fellow Americans, not just to opponents, but to enemies.
just a couple of weeks after the Glenville shootout, President Nixon takes to the stage at the Republican National Convention in Miami in 1968. And speaking for what he would later call the silent majority, Nixon declares himself the law and order candidate, this divisive election, this ultimately divisive year in America. We'll talk to our guest, Jim, about the Nixon backlash. And we'll also hear President Nixon as he declares himself the law and order candidate, a speech that Donald Trump would use 48 years later. Yeah, it's the end of the Cleveland now. As I say, all of this violence in the country, Watts, Detroit, uh, Newark, um, there was a lot of violence going on at the time. That all brings in this white backlash. Um, there's another part to that, which is the anti-Vietnam War protesters also stoke a backlash too. But it's really on the race side of things, this race violence that's breaking out everywhere brings in Richard Nixon, who does, goes to the convention two weeks after the shootout. Miami, right? Miami, and says, you know, there's, there's uh, sirens in the street and our police are being killed. And, um, you know, we see America that is in complete chaos, and he says, I am the law and order candidate. I am the only one who can solve this problem. Um, and if you hear the echo to Donald Trump in 2016, it's because he uses that speech, Trump does, in 2016 as the model for his speech that he gives here in Cleveland, five miles from where that shootout took place 50 years later. Um, and what Nixon really is saying is that he will be the law and order candidate to restore order. And tonight it's time for some honest talk about the problem of order in the United States. Let us always respect, as I do, our courts and those who serve on them. But let us also recognize that some of our courts and their decisions have gone too far in weakening the peace forces as against the criminal forces in this country. Because, my friends, let this message come through clear from what I say tonight. Time is running out for the merchants of crime and corruption in American society. The wave of crime is not going to be the wave of the future in the United States of America. To those who say that law and order is the code word for racism, there and here is a reply. Our goal is justice. Justice for every American. That begins this period of this counter-revolution that Nixon starts. And it, we ha it then becomes the Reagan Revolution. And it then becomes, um, it, today, the Trump Revolt. It is really that same cycle. And even the Clinton presidency was a more moderate presidency for a Democrat. He's the one that put in some of these laws that put a lot of these people away for drug violations. Sure. Uh, the three strikes and you're out in particular. In 94, I think, yeah. yeah. So um, it is, it is, we've been cycling through that counter-revolution since then. And as I say, when Trump came here to Cleveland in 2016, he deliberately mimics Nixon's 1968 speech, I am the law and order candidate. We see our police you know, being killed in the streets and uh, I will bring order to all of this. I'm the only one who can do so. It's a, it's a, both of them are authoritarians. How, how many days after the Dallas shooting was the, the convention was the, the Dallas shooting was on July 7th and the convention was two weeks later so it was almost the exact time period of the shootout in Glenville and then 
uh, Nixon going to speak in uh, Miami Beach. We will be a country of generosity and warmth, but we will also be a country of law and order. Our convention occurs at a moment of crisis for our nation. The attacks on our police and the terrorism of our cities threaten our very way of life. America was shocked to its core when our police officers in Dallas were so brutally executed. I have a message to every last person threatening the peace on our streets and the safety of our police. When I take the oath of office next year, I will restore law and order to our country. Believe me, believe me. In this race for the White House, I am the law and order candidate. The parallels of the two speeches are, are eerie. But they both plans work. Both win very contested elections by small margins. You know, as we look at the events of, of the buildup and events of 1968, and the events of, of 2016 and now 2018, there are a lot of similarities. So what have exactly have we been doing the last 50 years? We asked Jim, how do we get back on track? Because there seemed to be some momentum in 1968. But with the Glenville shootout, among other things, helped us snuff that out. When I get to the final chapter, I drop that pretense of being objective and decide it's my book. I can, I get the, it's my prerogative to say what I want to say politically. And so I, the chapter is about these comparisons between Trump and Nixon, but it ends with my, what I said earlier in this, which is, I think we were on the right track in 68 and that we were willing to look at the problem, first of all, as a white racist problem, not a black depravity problem. Um, and address it, we have to address, you know, white racism as a part of this. And I still think that's true. Um, and I also think that it's true that we were on the right track and that we were looking at what are the core problems here. And the core problems were, you know, extreme pro poverty and lack of jobs, lack of good housing, lack of the ability of people to have open housing. All those things are things that we can still work on and hit the reset button, but that's gonna take a real uh, huge political will to do that, and, and, but I think it's possible. As we leave you this episode, we'll talk about the Cleveland Now example, how close maybe we came to ending the divide between the races and the inequality in housing and education and opportunity. We talked to Jim one last time about the Cleveland Now program and what its failure has represented as we are doomed to repeat history. And hopefully to get into places like Huff and Glenville and places in Chicago where now kids are killing each other with gun violence in an alarming rate and nobody cares. Um, but to start getting in and interdicting and uh, you know, massively investing in our own cities and in our own people.
And Cleveland Now really was a program that, that could have done that. You know? Cleveland Now would have been a fantastic start. And I think that it would have done a lot for education, done a lot for jobs. Uh, and think about the other thing. If Stokes had been a successful mayor, then that model would have proved itself. And it would have been helpful not only here, but other cities where other, other mayors struggled to get through things. If, if the model of Cleveland would have worked, spend a lot of money um, and begin to address the problems directly and be honest about them, that could have been very infectious around the country. book for the episode is Ballots and Bullets by Jim Robinald, our guest. came out in July 2018. Fantastic book, Ballots and Bullets, Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. Get it on Amazon. We've got a link in the description. You can scroll down on your phone, click on it. It's an awesome read. Also, you can check out uh, Ballots and Bullets, the podcast, six-part podcast series, that Jim did with WKYC, Channel 3, NBC, in Cleveland uh, for a deeper dive in, in all kinds of topics we weren't able to get to today. Thanks again to Jim for having us over to his office. Uh, he's also written a great book that we've read called The Harding Affair, um, a really cool book, and we're, we're going to have to have him back on uh, because he really is one of the preeminent Ohio historians, and we, we really appreciate him joining our show. Guys, that'll do it. Um, again, rate and review the show. Share the show on, on Facebook and Instagram and tell your friends. Um, that is the absolute best way. Don't forget about Giving Tuesday coming up on November 27th for your chance to give back to Ohio History um, and give money to the Ohio History Connection. Uh, we appreciate all the work that they do around the state, and, and we're so excited to be a part of it. Um, our next episode will be out Sunday, November 18th, and that'll be an episode about Edwin Stanton, Lincoln's Secretary of War, the man who won the war, the Ohioan from Steubenville. It'll be a Civil War episode. We'll sit down with Walter Starr, Simon & Schuster, a published author, and talk to him about his book about Stanton, really the, the ultimate biography of Stanton. Such an important and overlooked person in American history also from Ohio. That'll do it, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, we really enjoyed bringing you this episode. Uh, it now can be a little frustrating when you think about how little we've accomplished um, in the last 50 years. But progress, as we said, we're drinking the, the progress pilsner from, from Market Garden. Progress is on the way. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for listening to Ohio Be the World. grown up me too yep me too but you know these days being a grown-up can really suck luckily we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation we had video arcades and also some of the best tv and movies ever made we lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics the list goes on and on yep generation x exactly and we're gen x grown-up every week the gen x grown-up podcast explores media tech 
toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.